This is Perfect Takes. I'm your host, Jacob, joined by my host, Steven, as always. Um, and we had a choice to make this week, and really the last couple weeks. Uh, we looked at a wide range of candidates, you know, some uh, not from around here, some from around here. We got to know them a little bit, uh, learned about their past, stuff like that. And in the end, we narrowed it down to a couple that we liked, right? And uh, there was one local, and there were a couple candidates that were, they weren't from around here, but we know them pretty well. And in the end, we decided to settle with uh, the local guy. It's something that's uh, maybe a little disappointing, but uh, we, we've known this in the past, and we know about this candidate and stuff like that. And of course, I'm talking about the beer of the week being Cheerwine Ale from Noda Brewing Company, you know. A little disappointing, uh, because we know Cheerwine. We love Cheerwine. It's local, you know. Uh, a, a, an excellent soda. Back when I used to drink soda, that was probably my favorite just like uh, the Panthers are my favorite team, stuff like that. But in the end, uh, when there were other better beers out there, we settled for this one for the pot. And I think that's uh, pretty on brand for today. It's very on brand considering that the next general manager for the Carolina Panthers is Dan Morgan. He played professional football with the Panthers in the early 2000s, uh, was a huge catalyst for the 2003 Super Bowl run uh, where we lost to the Patriots. And he's he's got an interesting background from an exec standpoint. We'll kind of get into that. We'll talk about that. Uh, I, I really want to highlight what he's done uh, before we kind of bash him. Uh, and where his first start was is he was a scout for the Seattle Seahawks back in 2010, a draft in which they ended up getting Earl Thomas. And uh, I believe Cam Chancellor was in that draft. Um, and then the next year, 2011, uh, through 2014, he became the assistant director of pro personnel for the Seahawks. Uh, drafts that included Richard Sherman, Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, some big names, guys that are definitely going to be in consideration for the Hall of Fame, were huge catalysts for their two Super Bowl runs. And then he ended up becoming the director of pro personnel from 2015 to 2017. Uh, before moving on to the Buffalo Bills to take on a similar role with Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott. And then after 2020, that's when he found himself back with the Carolina Panthers uh, from 2021 till now. Uh, he was part of the Matt Rule era. He was a part of the short and brief Frank Reich era. And I, the feeling I'm getting, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, Jacob, but I feel like David Tepper is going with someone he feels comfortable with. And he talked about it in his one kind of press conference at the end of the year is that he's had guys work for him and, and I'm sure women as well work for him for 25 plus years. And he just really respects loyalty. But after a team goes two and 15, I, I feel like you got a clean house. Yeah, I'm with you there. Not to sell Dan Morgan short, uh, all time leading tackler in a Super Bowl game against the Patriots. They say it was 18 tackles, but uh, it, it's been charted as 25, so I'm going to go with that. Uh, but uh, not to sell a former Panther great linebacker short. You know our linebacker heritage going all the way back to uh, Sam Mills. We talked about that a couple pods ago where we thought Mike McDonald would have a good influence with that whole linebacker line. Well, it looks like in the front office we're getting that in Dan Morgan. And I, I do think he's kind of – I don't want to say he's a yes man for Tepper, but I think he offers a sense of security for Tepper because when we, when Tepper first bought the team uh, and he got rid of uh, Ron Rivera after a couple of seasons, he didn't really have anyone there to help him, you know, in the search other than Marty Herney. Right. So it was him and Herney looking at all the coaches. They ended up settling with rule and he, he hasn't really had a football brain trust, so to speak throughout his time here, even going to hiring Fitterer because Fitterer's hire was a big or Matt rule was a big part of, Scott Fitterer's hire. He was on the uh, the search team when they were looking for GMs. And I think that Tepper wanted a guy that he could trust, somebody that's close to the team, because Tepper's big on uh, connections with the team. We know he brought Steve Smith back into the Hall of Honor, uh, brought Cam back for a stint to play, um, a, a bunch of stuff there. Brought a, a bunch of uh, he's added, I think, more people to the team's Hall of Honor than like previously before combined. Um, so I think he's big on connections, like Panther connections, but, um, I agree with you. I don't think a, what's necessary after a two and 15 season is a promotion for someone that worked in the front office. I 
personally would have preferred to clean house, but I'm not completely distraught at the hiring of Dan Morgan because he also knows what went, what went wrong in this uh, little stint that he's been here. So hopefully he can correct that because he's been pretty highly regarded across the league. I know he interviewed for the Steelers general manager spot a couple years ago, interviewed for the Titans last year. So it's not like he doesn't have any pull around the league. It's just disappointing that after a two and 15 season, we aren't cleaning house. We aren't cleaning house. And to, to his credit, and like you were alluding to, he has a lot of uh, fans around the league in terms of former players, like the amount of former Carolina Panthers players that came out and said like pretty much congrats. Like this is the guy uh, between guys like Julius Peppers, Jonathan Stewart, uh, Greg Olson this morning on the Pat McAfee show was kind of singing his praises why he is known for being a hard hitting linebacker. He is very smart. He, does have a lot of football acumen and can identify talent, but it goes back to kind of what you were alluding to with Tepper of like kind of keeping homegrown uh, in the Carolinas. He probably was a huge part of them bringing in Fitterer, even though rule was kind of part of that decision because Fitterer was in Seattle and, and where was Dan Morgan for all those years in Seattle. And that's kind of what concerns me about uh, who we're going to hire as head coach, because one of the top guys or, so it appears right now is Dave Canales, and he he kind of worked together with him for for many many years there. Uh, he obviously had a great year this past year as the offensive coordinator and play caller for the Tampa Bay Bucks. But it's it's one of those things that you you bring in a a search firm not only for the general manager position but the head coach position. Uh, I think they had more head coach uh, interviews and candidates lined up than any other team that was looking for a head coach this all season. And when you kind of keep it so narrow in terms of perspective, I feel like that's what's going to keep us from growing because there were a couple other GM candidates. I don't know if you want to start going into them that I thought had better credentials or, or came from better backgrounds and could have really helped turn this franchise around. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like I mentioned, I think last week, the two that I wanted the most uh, either got scooped up by the commanders and uh, Adam Peters and Will McClay of the Cowboys is staying with the Cowboys. But yeah, we casted a wide net in the GM search as well. You have the uh, the people listed down here. I feel bad for you because uh, you wrote out all the, uh, the information about the finalists on the script. And then we hopped in a Discord call, uh, I think yesterday evening. And as we were going over it, I was I was scrolling Twitter and I saw that Dan Morgan had been hired. But the uh, the finalists that we had were obviously Morgan, um, Brandon Brown, who is the assistant general manager for the Giants currently, and Alec Halaby or Halaby maybe, who's the assistant GM for the Eagles. Both of these guys had experience under Howie Roseman, which is something pretty good like to to have on your resume. I guess he's one of the better GMs in the league, if not the best. Completely reshaped. Uh, two Super Bowl teams. Um, so having that experience is always good. But uh, yeah, it, it's they just offer a different perspective. And that's kind of what I was looking forward to. But seems like we aren't going with either one of them. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened with Hallaby. I think he should have been one of the front runners. And the reason why is he from like a graduate, pretty much intern. Um, I believe it was when he was still in Harvard uh, with the Eagles. He was there when Andy Reid was in the building. And obviously Howie Roseman was there as well. But they go from the Andy Reid era to the Chip Kelly era to the Doug Peterson era and now the Nick Serrani era. I mean, this guy has seen a, a multitude of coaches, a multitude of rosters. Uh, they've made plenty of playoff runs. And that kind of experience, it's just it's, it's hard to kind of say that uh, – that would have impacted the Carolinas and how we rebuilt this roster, because it's one of those things that I, you and Jason Fitzgerald and does a great job at breaking this down over the cap. But really the, the roster that you look at really, you can maintain that for about two, maybe three years and roster turnover is a big deal. So to be able to kind of pivot and, and get new guys in the building that are going to be impact that not only the culture, but your ability to win games is I think super paramount. And, and it just goes back to the fact that Dan Morgan's been a part of this team since 2021. And if you look at our drafts, if you look at free agency, there's nothing that I'm looking at that goes, yeah, we, we did a great job there. Uh, there's a, been a couple nice pieces. There's been a couple bright spots, but overall, when you you end a year two and fifteen, you got to look internally and go like whatever you're doing right now is not right. So hopefully Dan Morgan interviewed correctly. I know there are talks of bringing in potentially a Brant Tillis 
potentially an assistant general manager role. He was very paramount with the Chiefs, uh, with the contract negotiations with Patrick Mahomes. So having a guy that can come in and fill in for Samir Suleiman, uh, who was just released by the Panthers today, I think that would be huge. I just just buff out that front office as best you can because. My concern with Dan Morgan, as much as a lot of other people say he's a great talent evaluator, I I just don't see it with his resume, Uh, especially when he's been director of pro personnel uh, with the Seahawks and the Bills during eras that really you can't point to a lot of great draft classes. Uh, And that that's worrisome for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I do like the idea of bringing in Tillis from the Chiefs, although you pointed out that it might be kind of a lateral move, so they may have to. Tepper may have to throw some extra dollars his way to make it happen, but I like pairing a, a scouting mind or a personnel mind with an analytics mind or a, a contract mind, and that's what Tillis is. Um, I, I do think the rest of the front office does need to be bolstered, though, aside from just Morgan and if Tillis comes in, uh, Brand Tillis. Like, we need a team president still. We need a bunch of other things because – and to be quite frank – I don't know if uh, I'm pretty sure that the scouting staff is staying on because there are reports that Cole Spencer, who is the uh, director of college scouting for the Panthers, was also sitting in on head coaching interviews, Um, which, by the way, Dan Morgan sitting in on head coaching interviews should have been a a huge, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, sign that he was going to be the general manager. But I I think uh, our college scouting department needs to be revamped as well. Um, but maybe they had different scouting reports and Federer just chose the guys he liked. Who knows? But I, I do think there needs to be a lot of turnover in the front office as well as uh, the coaching staff. And we're obviously doing the coaching staff already. Uh, yeah. In regards to the coaching staff, uh, I, I don't want to gloss over or just real quick want to talk about there are a couple of candidates that have uh, received a second interview. Or there are in, there is interest in a second interview. And that's uh, Evero, obviously, Canales. Callahan was until he was hired to be the Titans head coach. And I believe Raheem Morris also um, has been requested to have a second interview here. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's because you have Ben Johnson and Mike McDonald and even Todd Munkin right now in the championship window. Um, I think they can't really be interviewed until after the Super Bowl. Right. If they are to advance past this week. Um, so we'll kind of see how that goes. We have been really hasty in terms of making a decision with our coaches. I mean, uh, David Tepper goes and has dinner with Matt Rule, hires him the next day. We hired Frank Reich very early into the cycle last year, and we didn't give ourselves an opportunity to truly vet different coordinators. And I understand there's there's a lot that has to be done in an offseason. You have to fill in a, a coaching staff. Um, but it's one of those things that if you don't get it right, it doesn't matter if you, you, you hired the person a month earlier before other people did. To me, it's you need to make sure that this is the right decision. And hopefully the firm that's being hired by David Tepper is is doing a thorough job with that. So um, want to get into around the NFL now. I uh, really want to get off the topic of the Panthers. I, if, if we get a <laughs> notification that Dave Canales is the new Panthers head coach during this podcast, I might lose my mind. Um, but a game that was a thriller. Uh, did not disappoint. Uh, Kansas City goes to Buffalo this past weekend. And I mean, that was, it, it looked like it was going to be a barn burner at first, but then both defenses kind of tightened up in the second half and a couple mistakes towards the end of the game. And Kansas City kind of walks out of Buffalo with yet another victory in the postseason. And I, a lot of questions could be around Josh Allen's legacy. Um, do the Buffalo Bills need to pivot themselves? They're in contract or not contract cap hell. Uh, going into this offseason. So it'll be interesting how they retain Stefan Diggs, Von Miller, if they just restructure everybody and kick the can down a couple of years like the Saints have done over the past like half decade. Um, what what were your, your some uh, some of your takeaways from this? Uh, I, I would argue classic between Mahomes and Allen. Yeah, it, another classic uh, in this matchup that we seem to have every year now in the playoffs. Um, I, I think Allen is far from the biggest problem on the bills, especially this game. I think he played excellent up until really that last set of downs. And even then I think he made the right choice throwing into the end zone. He just missed the guy. And he, I think he got hit uh, like mid throw as well. So he missed that, missed that one there. Um, Yeah. It it just seems that as great as he is, Mahomes is obviously just better. And 
it's hard to beat Mahomes, especially playoff Mahomes, when he's playing at such a high level. I saw a tweet today where it compared Mahomes' 16 playoff games. Yeah, he's already had 16 in his mm-hmm. six years as a starter. His 16 playoff game uh, statistics and everything blow Lamar's year this year out of the water. And we can assume Lamar's the MVP this year, uh, even though it's a bit of a down year for QB play. It's just insane how high or how high a level that Mahomes plays in the playoffs, except for the one uh, Bengals game second half. Other than that, he's been lights out. And so it's hard for the Bills when they build a team specifically to beat the Chiefs. I don't want to say specifically to beat the Chiefs, but that's what they had in mind, I'm sure, when they made all the moves that they made, like Von Miller uh, bringing in. Uh, what's his name this year? Leonard Floyd, uh, yep. drafting uh, offense. Trading uh, Rasul Douglas mid-season. Yeah, trading for uh, Rasul Douglas, um, drafting to uh, Cyrus Torrance and Dalton Kincaid, people that can help in the run game. Their run game improved a lot uh, this year, and their run game was really good in the first half of this game. But like you said, the Chiefs defense tightened up uh, in the second half. It's just incredibly disappointing because, like you said, on the all-in kind of index, they're up there for sure. I think it's like them – uh, the Browns and the who else was it? The Dolphins. You had Chargers and Dolphins that were up Chargers there. Chargers have the yeah. ability to get off a lot of bad contracts, unlike right. because here's the thing: like if the Bills were to say, "Hey, we want no part of Diggs and Miller going forward," it's a sixty million dead cap hit this year, which is just it's that's that's almost insurmountable. Which, it's you enormous. Yeah, that that's almost the or a little less than the amount that they took on when they started their rebuild. So that's just a huge amount. It's not like they can move on, like you said, from some of their aging stars. They just have to restructure and keep kicking the can down the road. But if you do that, you're having to pay all these old guys when you could be paying the money to free agency or getting good people in the draft and paying them. I guess the bright side is that they have a first round pick this year, which I'm not super confident in Brandon Bean nailing because I I don't hold the highest opinion of his drafting abilities, but It's kind of, I don't want to say like it's over for the Bills because as long as Josh Allen plays as well as he does, they're going to have a chance to win games. But I think this was their last run uh, where they were comfortable cap wise with this kind of core that they have here. So I think there are going to have to be some changes over the next couple years if they want to be as good as they were, say, a couple years ago. Because we have teams like the Jets, who I think we can argue probably have the best roster in the uh the division I would say aside from the QB. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah, say so, NFL. Yeah. yeah, just the East. No, the the division, yeah, aside from the QB obviously. Um you have the Dolphins this year who uh have an explosive offense who are good. And you have the Patriots who are rebuilding and have uh the third I think the third overall pick uh in the draft this year and a ton of cap space like you pointed out. You have all these teams coming for that first place. Uh, the Dolphins had first place for most of the year. They just lost it at the end. So it's the Bills aren't the juggernaut that they were a couple of years ago. And I think they're going to have to retool quite a bit if they want to get back there. And it's it's funny that they lose to Kansas City, uh, especially considering what both teams decided to do with their star wide receivers. You had Kansas City trade Tyreek Hill. Uh, obviously, they still have Kelsey in the building, but then the Bills retain Stephon Diggs. And now it's like going into this offseason, you're looking at like the Chiefs roster. I mean, they hit on their draft class last year. Uh, they've been able to kind of rebuild and retool because they trust uh, kind of what Mahomes and Reed are doing. And you just see the Bills really didn't trust kind of that process of going, okay, hey, we know that there's going to be roster turnover. We know we need to pivot. Instead, they kind of just doubled down. And now that's going to bite them in the rear in t- going into this offseason and next year. So we'll see how that changes. Uh, you look at it from advanced metrics, uh, DVOA, EPA, they favor the Chiefs in this one. So even though there are a couple unlucky things at the end, I guess a, a couple Bills fans would point to, this really was a game that was controlled by the Chiefs. Um, and part of that was and, because the Bills linebackers were all banged up. I mean, Kelsey was just having his way with that uh, kind of that second level. And despite uh, Tyler Bass missing the field goal to tie or yeah, to tie, I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind except maybe Bills fans that with a minute 50 and two timeouts or I think it was just one timeout. Regardless, the way Mahomes was playing, even if they make that field goal, I think he's driving down and crushing him at the end. Yeah, uh, that, that's just my opinion. But like, that's what Mahomes does. It took him 13 seconds to get a field goal a couple years ago. So it, it is what it is there. I think the Chiefs were going to win regardless. And hopefully the Bills can bounce back and move forward going into next year. Because like you said, they're in 
a bit of a uh, an iffy cap situation. Yeah, and so they're going to need guys like Shakir, Kincaid to take another step next year. Um, the offensive line, they need to keep that group healthy. Uh, James Cook needs to stop dropping uh, would-be touchdown passes. Uh, so you have a couple pieces on that offense. You do have pieces on the defensive side, but it's just kind of keeping the group together and trying to figure out uh, are they able to trade some of these contracts away? Are they able to kind of pivot away from some of these? Because they're, they're going in the next year as of right now with an effective cap space of $52 million over the cap. So they're going to have to get underneath the cap. Um, they don't have a lot of wiggle room to just cut a player and boom, they're, they, they, they free up a bunch of space. So that'll be interesting to go. Um, but pivoting from this game, uh, we aren't going to really talk about some of the other games. We'll, we'll kind of talk about the Ravens, the 49ers, the Lions a little bit in our kind of championship preview. But we wanted to get to this last week, ran out of time because we were talking about head coaching candidates, but we wanted to get to the all pro list. Uh, we wanted to talk about some guys that might have gotten snubbed a couple weeks back uh, and even a homegrown guy that I think both of us feel like kind of got ripped off in a little bit because he played for a small market team for a, a two and 15 squad. And that's Derek Brown. Uh, this wasn't a guy that made either, even the second team all pro, let alone the first team. And you just see a lot of big names that kind of popped up uh, between Aaron Donald and Chris Jones. And I think Chris Jones, when he's healthy is one of the most impactful defensive players. Um, he had over 10 sacks this year, clearly, uh, a, a very phenomenal player in his own right. But Derek Brown, I mean, he set the record for most tackles by an interior defensive lineman, if I'm correct. Yeah, uh, most ever in a season for an interior uh, defense, or I think all defensive linemen, rather. Um, I'm fine with Chris Jones making the first team. Obviously, he had a phenomenal season. Uh, but Aaron Donald, I think he is living off his name. The second team, uh, Justin Matabuke, who also was phenomenal this year, and Dexter Lawrence. I would be, I would have been fine of, with either one of them being in the first team and then Derek Brown being second team. But uh, I think Aaron Donald got the Aaron Donald tax, so to speak, with him being one of the most dominant defenders that we've ever seen. I think he's living off his name a little bit, kind of like Bobby Wagner uh, was last yeah. year. We got a that was just bizarre that he was a pro bowler last year. Um, but yeah, Derek, pro Derek Bowl Brown, or uh, all, all yeah. pro, I mean, last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that was just bizarre to me. But uh, and he was a second teamer this year, which is still uh, kind of insane. But um, and then another one we wanted to talk about was the receivers, right? I think nobody can dispute Tyree Kill and C.D. Lamb being uh, the first team receivers. But that third guy, Monroe St. Brown, I feel like uh, both of us have some of the guys in the second team that we thought could have gone over him, like uh, A.J. Brown or Mike Evans, or you're a big fan of Brandon Ayuk as well. Yeah, no, I mean, those wide receivers, I think they all, like, it was that third spot that if any of the second team guys got in over, uh, I think Ayuk would have been a little bit of a stretch, just like I think Amon Ra is. But A.J. Brown, similar to C.D. Lamb, um, it was kind of like a reciprocal of each other's seasons. A.J. Brown started the season off super hot. I mean, he looked like a, a top three wide receiver, hands down. This guy was just straight out balling. Um, and then just faded down the stretch. But I mean, like from a, a true value standpoint, I thought Brown was a better wide receiver than Amon Ra. I think Amon Ra just really fits Ben Johnson's system really well. He has good rapport with Jared Goff. Uh, and, and that's not to dissuade anything from him. I think he truly deserved a second team all pro. But then you look at a guy like Mike Evans and what he's been doing for as long as he's been doing it. Um, why doesn't he sneak in? Because he was definitely a huge part of the Buccaneers kind of making their wild card push. Now, I know a lot of people probably point to the drops that he had all year, and I can understand that being a knock on him, but that, that was the head scratcher. Um, the only thing I think I wanted to talk about, and you might have something else after this, um, but it was talking about the two, two punters that made first and second team all pro. So AJ Cole, uh, he made first team all pro and Brian Anger, uh, made second team all pro. So AJ Cole, he's the punter for the Las Vegas Raiders. A um, couple years back, the Big Data Bowl did a pretty much a special teams category uh, for their project. And so when I was looking at punt yards over expected, when looking at uh, angle trajectory, uh, how far the punt went, how long it hung in the air, uh, things like that, AJ Cole ranked, ranked second between 2018 and 2020, and Brian Anger ranked ninth. Um, from that same three-year span. So seeing two guys in the top 10 
uh, get those honors this year. I think it's just a testament to there's a longevity at some of these special teams positions, whether it be punter or kicker, uh, because a guy like Justin Tucker, he's been doing it for over a decade, that when you truly find that guy, uh, keep him. Even if you have to pay a little bit more, I think sometimes it's very valuable having a guy uh, that can help with the field position battle, which is a part of playing football uh, that can be a little bit underrated. Absolutely. A guy like Justin Tucker is probably more valuable than some of the QBs in this league with his ability to just make kicks like that. Uh, so it's outstanding that those guys have been doing that at a high level like that. The only other thing I wanted to talk about is that I think it's really, really cool that both Kyron Williams and Puka Nakua uh, both made the second team all pro. Back to back fifth round picks for Les Snead and the Rams. And they're really coming into their own, finding those late round gems that can impact winning in a, like in a quick way. This is their second and first years. To be frank, I think Puka could have made a first team. Um, but it's hard for them to put a rookie, I guess, as a first team player. Um, uh, Laporta was also second team all pro. So that's that's cool to see. Yeah, I see yeah. Uh, you're, you're uh, yeah. you saw it on <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move into our um, traditional uh, section of coach talk. Uh, we're gonna highlight guys that have been hired from a head coaching, a coordinator standpoint. Get into a couple guys where there's continuity in the uh, coaching staff and, and not so much continuity. And we'll kick that off with Antonio Pierce. After our podcast last week, he was announced as the Raiders uh, head coach. Uh, phenomenal down the stretch. He really won over that locker room. They played hard for him. Very Wilkes-esque in terms of uh, just being able to get the most out of that roster. And I think if they're able to find a quarterback, honestly, this is a team that I think nobody wants to play against because that defense was balling. And and honest to goodness, that offense still dropped 63 points against the Chargers on a Thursday night game. So clearly they have a lot of good pieces on that team. Uh, but what's interesting is they brought in Tom Telusco, and this just got announced as their general manager, who was the Chargers general manager for, I think, close to a decade, if not a little bit more. So I think that's a little bit interesting. Any thoughts on those hirings? Yeah, I love the Antonio Pierce hiring, like we talked about. I think this is the first time that we've seen an interim head coach be promoted, interim head co- uh, minority head coach be promoted to the full-time head coach, which is awesome to see, absolutely deserves it. Uh, consummate pro and leader there. Um, but Tom Telesco, I am not a fan of that whatsoever. <laughs> From what I had heard uh, that they were happy with their interim GM, Ch- I think it's Champ Kelly uh, was the interim GM's name. Uh, and he and, interviewed really well with Carolina, yeah, he, I heard. Yeah, no. He interviewed across the league, so he was pretty well regarded. But I, I am not a fan of Telesco at all. I think he's a horrible uh, drafter. I, I don't understand his longevity at all. They won, what, one playoff game in his 11-year tenure with the uh, the Chargers? So I yeah. don't understand this whatsoever. Like, maybe it's because he was within division, so they know him. But this seems like one step forward with Pierce and two steps back with a guy who's now controlling the roster who hasn't been very successful in doing so, despite having like quarterbacks like Rivers and Herbert who – are among the top groups in the league. Like if you can't get it done, then I I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I mean, I think you could point to that. He, he built the offensive line fairly well. Uh, Some of the defensive stars that he's drafted, like a Joey Boza, Darwin James, not bad, but when he's handed out second contracts, he's brought in different free agents. Uh, And I'm referring more to like JC Jackson, Khalil Mack, uh, extending a Mike Williams, like some of those moves, that's, I think, more the head scratching uh, that I have when looking at a Tom Telusco. We'll see if it works. Um, I don't know why the Raiders are infatuated with him. Um, I thought having him in the building was actually a competitive advantage for the rest of the AFC West. <laughs> Um, so him now going to a rival, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm sure the Chargers fans are ecstatic right now. Um, but another hire that happened, and this happened yesterday, the Tennessee Titans, after their second interview with Brian Callahan, made sure he wasn't going to leave the building. And he had a second interview lined up with the Carolina Panthers. I think you you briefly mentioned that earlier. Uh, this is a guy, son of Bill Callahan. Uh, he's, he's coached under guys like John Gruden. Uh, obviously, Zach Taylor. I think he's had some time with Sean McVay. So very like this is an off branch or offshoot from the Mike Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan trees. 
but a guy that understands the offensive side uh, will probably be able to bring his dad in to coach the offensive line and and really restore the Titans offensive line to what it was a couple of years ago, because I think they're one of the front runners to draft a guy like Joe Alt in the first round in the top 10 picks. And, and you want to protect your franchise quarterback and Will Levis. Um, what I saw from Benjamin Solak, though, earlier was very interesting is that the Bengals offense has been very much short out route type concepts, uh, allowing T Higgins and Jamar Chase to go make a play, which those are two superstar guys in their own right. And then Joe Burrow was a first overall pick. He understands how to operate an offense. And when you're going from that and, and scheming up a uh, play design for that, and then you're going to a gunslinger who's, who's throwing the ball, uh, more 15, 20 yards down the field, more in the middle of the field, you wonder if those uh, that that's a, a good marriage, so to speak. And so that that would be my concern. That was Benjamin Solak's concern. Um, and I'll be interested to see if he can adapt. Knowing kind of the McVay tree, they're very good about putting their guys in the best position to succeed. So I'm actually excited to see what's going to happen from this. I wanted him, honestly, in Carolina. I thought that quick game uh, that we saw in Cincinnati with both Joe, Joe Burrow and Jake Browning this year would have been perfect with Bryce Young. Unfortunately, he just uh, didn't make it to us for that second interview and got scooped up before we had a chance. Yeah, I think the combination of uh, the QBs he's worked with and the coaches he's worked under, he's kind of developed a good uh... – a good, how, how do I say it? Like a good knowledge of the offensive side of the ball. Uh, he's got a good rapport with a lot of people around the league. And like you said, Bill Callahan is a legendary offensive line coach. And if he's able to bring him in to work with uh, Skaronski, and if they draft like a Olufashanu or Joe Wall, I think that'd work out perfectly. But I saw uh, an interview of him. I don't know if it was today or if it were earlier in the season where he talked about they drafted two wide receivers with top 35 picks when they were in Cincinnati. And so with that along with Joe Burrow, that's how they were able to build their offense. I wonder if they're going to draft a receiver with that. I believe they have pick uh, number seven. Uh, <clears> Malik wonder... neighbors. Well, he won't make it that far. True. Um, that's true. I don't even know if a Dunze will make it that far, but it, it, if he does, I'm, I wonder if that's going to be the role there because they do have a, a building block in Skaronsky, um and their receiving core isn't very good just to be uh, transparent. So I wonder if that's going to be the move there. But I think we can expect it to be an offensive pick on that side of the ball with this hire. And another thing before we move on that I saw that was pretty interesting, with the hire of Brian Callahan uh, and now the Bengals having to replace him, every single NFL team since uh, 2022 started will have replaced their offensive coordinator. So that kind of shows the turnover at that position, whether they're hired away to be head coaches or – they're let go because the offense isn't performing well. That might that may be the uh, highest turnover position in all of football right now. It is, and it goes to show just how valuable that is and how valuable head coaches are that call plays on the offensive side. So when we talk about a guy like a Kyle Shanahan or a Sean McVay or even an Andy Reid, uh, the biggest knocks on those guys is that they they sometimes have poor clock management. And so that's one of the things that I think is pretty easy to correct from like an analytics standpoint. You can hire somebody to do that. But to have some of these guys at the head that are calling the plays and are able to design some of these great offenses is really key and paramount. It's I've, I've heard some of the discourse that sometimes having that star quarterback, obviously that's that's the most prized position as your 1A, but having a coach right underneath with those kind of capabilities is like a 1B. And we've seen Kyle Shanahan work with kind of mid-tier quarterbacks. And that's not a knock necessarily on a Brock Purdy, but it's more one of those things that they don't have like an elite quarterback and they're still able to produce at a very high level. Um, moving into an offensive coordinator, since we're on this theme, Shane Waldron uh, with Pete Carroll kind of stepping down in Seattle uh, was – kind of let go to kind of pursue other opportunities and he landed in Chicago. And so I think it'll be very interesting whether uh, the front office decides to kind of move forward with Justin Fields and build around them. If they draft a quarterback to put behind them, if they ship Justin Fields out and then go with that rookie quarterback. But I think Shane Waldron, based on what he's done with uh, Russell Wilson, with Geno Smith, I think he's capable of getting the most out of a guy like Fields or one of these rookie quarterbacks, whether it be a Drake May or Caleb Williams. So I'm really excited for this. Shane Waldron's been a guy that I've I've been in his corner for about like the last, I want to say like half year to almost this like entire year 
Um, he, he's a guy that's underrated. I think if he does a really good job in Chicago, he's going to get a lot of head coaching interviews next year. Yeah, regardless of the QB uh, situation like you're talking about, I think Waldron's going to be a pretty big upgrade over Luke Getze, who I just wasn't a fan of his entire tenure in Chicago there. I think if they had had a better offensive scheme, the team would have performed a lot better. We saw how they were looking at the end of the year. They were putting up big numbers. So I think even if they stick with fields, the offense will look a lot better next year. Yeah, no. And so I I think they're going to take a step in the right direction. Um, I will be intrigued to see where Ryan Poles goes with that. But another coordinator um, that kind of got free reigns to kind of pursue his opportunities was Ryan Nielsen. He was brought on uh, by Arthur Arthur Smith to be the defensive coordinator in Atlanta. Uh, He came from Dennis Allen, and I thought he did a great job in Atlanta. And a guy that he's replacing is a guy I didn't necessarily think needed to be replaced, but the Jaguars decided decided to part ways with Mike Caldwell, and they brought in him. And based on the kind of the fronts and uh, what he was able to do in Atlanta, I think he's going to be able to take that defensive line that features Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker, and he's going to be able to kind of build a fearsome unit that can stop the run and get after the quarterback. And I think he'll he'll have a sound coverage on the back end, especially with what we've seen Dennis Allen do with the the Saints back end. And that, that'll be intriguing because I think if they're able to build the offensive line in this offseason, the Jaguars are a team that they, they started off hot. They started off eight and three this year, and they just kind of fell fell flat towards the end of the season. So it's one of those things that this is a team that could get hot next year and could make a run. And so I think that's exciting. I think this was a, a good direction for them to take. I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I thought this was a good hire. Yeah, I like the hire too. Um, they probably should have replaced the offensive uh, coordinator instead. But I like Nielsen a lot. I'm glad he's out of the division. And I think it kind of points to where Atlanta is looking in their coaching search. Uh, if they're willing to let their young, pretty uh, upcoming defensive coordinator go, They may be looking at a defensive head coach, uh, maybe a Belichick or something like that. Yeah, Um, and there's been a lot of rumors that if Belichick's going to Atlanta, he's going to bring in Josh McDaniels, Matt Patricia. They're going to run back the Patriots coaching staff in the 2010s. I don't think that's the smartest idea, but that that seems to be the vibe. Um, A team that has some continuity uh, going into this next year, and I think – it's directly tied to the contract or length of contract on expiring deals. And that's the Cowboys. They didn't let McCarthy go. And I don't know if they should extend Dak. Both of these guys have one year left on their contracts. I think it would be wise for Jerry Jones. This team's obviously won 12 games the past three years. See if they can bounce back. Uh, I know this is a college basketball reference, but we saw Virginia get smacked. Uh, as the one seed by a 16 seed, completely embarrassed, laughing stock of kind of the NCAA. Next year, they go win the title. And I'm not saying the Cowboys are going to win the title. Do not do not <laughs> mince my words with that. But I think there's an element of they got sucker punched in the mouth, and this is a good team. I could see them bouncing back, making the adjustments they need to, learning the lessons they need to in the offseason, and making a playoff run, like legitimately doing that, because I think that's really the next step for this team. And I know a lot of people are talking about Dak Prescott and how he chokes in the playoffs, but I, and I, I don't know what account this was, but it was talking about Peyton Manning. And it's absolutely true. If Twitter was as prevalent as it was uh, back in the early two thousands, Peyton Manning would have been ripped left and right. I mean, this guy would, would lose in the wild card round. He would lose uh, after getting the one or two seed, um, go back and watch the Steelers in 2005 when they made their Super Bowl run. I mean, that was one of the best teams of the regular season, got smacked uh, by the Steelers. And granted, the Steelers are a good team. N- nothing against them. But a couple years later, they got smacked uh, by the Chargers in Wild Card Weekend. So it's different things like that where I I don't want to necessarily say, hey, Dak's a choker. He obviously has a bad game, but I think there's an ability, especially with a good quarterback, uh, a good system, a good team that's been able to produce in the regular season, that they could have a swing going their way by just keeping the group together for one more year. Well, you made that uh, that excellent March Madness reference. And my counterpoint to that would be, Virginia had a a great coach, and I don't think McCarthy's a great coach. We talk about Dak maybe choking in the playoffs this year and not performing to his level. He was second-team All-Pro this year. Dak had an excellent year this year, and 
I think it just on both sides of the ball. I don't want to put all the blame on McCarthy, but I think just both sides of the ball fell flat in the playoffs this year. This was the first time we ever saw a seven seed win in the playoffs. And I think McCarthy and Quinn deserve a lot of blame for that. And I think down the stretch, a lot of the stuff, uh, like a lot of the things that the Cowboys lost or games that the Cowboys lost were concerning as well, like the uh, the Dolphins game. I think that could be attributed to coaching as well on both sides of the ball. I don't want to put it all on McCarthy, but yeah. Yeah, um, I think there's elements and we've talked at length of Dan Quinn needing to be able to get into a base defense. And I think if the Cowboys are able to kind of bolster their linebacking room, get guys that can cover like a Roquan Smith, a Fred Warner. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a guy of that caliber, but a light version of that where it's like, hey, we can we can get big with the offense and we don't feel like we're going to get exposed in the passing game. Um, and like you said, Dak had one of arguably his best seasons. And I think in part that was due to McCarthy's offense. I think there were at times where it did stagnate a bit, uh, playoffs included. So it's one of those things that I think uh, McCarthy and Schottenheimer need to go back to the drawing board and add elements. And that was the one thing that I was really impressed with after their bye week this year. They, they were incorporating a lot more things that you saw from Mike McDaniel in Miami or Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco. And so if they're able to kind of pull ideas from other coaches around the league and incorporate it in this offense, they have a shot. They, they have a legitimate shot. Now, a team that's hitting the reset button is a team in their division. And it's the Philadelphia Eagles. They lost Shane Steichen and Jonathan Gannon uh, last year to head coaching roles. This year, uh, they let Sean Desai and Brian Johnson go. Uh, Sean Desai was actually, I, I don't know the way that he wasn't fired in season, but he was pretty he much was re- like replaced yeah. Yeah, uh, by Matt Patricia. And that was a whole dumpster fire in and of itself. Uh, they, they probably were better off just keeping Sean Desai in that role. Um, but now they're on the market looking for the replacements for both of those guys. And it's going to be very interesting to see kind of the direction they go. Does Nick Serrani pivot and, and get somebody from a different tree, a different coaching philosophy, so to speak? Does he take over play calling roles on the offense? Uh, and then on the defensive side, who is he going to replace? How is Howie Roseman kind of bolster the the secondary? Because I think that's really where their weaknesses are. Linebacker and secondary, I think they have a great defensive line. Um, and it's more just making sure it's more of a complete unit so they can kind of rebuild for another run, so to speak. I saw, I can't remember who this is. It might've been, uh, Tom Pelissero, but I saw that there was interest on the defensive side of the ball of bringing in Ron Rivera to be the defensive coordinator. I did see that. And, well, he, he was a good defensive coordinator back in, it was 2010, right? His last time as yep. a defensive coordinator for the Chargers. Um, that was 14 years ago now. Um, so I'm not sure how effective he'd be there. And then I saw some Eagles people, uh, and granted, these were just like fans. So I'm sure they don't have any weight, but they were saying like there might be interest in Frank Reich being the offensive play caller. So I thought that that was interesting that uh, Nick Sirianni, after having Shane Steichen and Jonathan Gannett, could go to two former Panthers head coaches. That would be pretty wild. Uh, Ron Rivera, both in Carolina and in Washington, he took over play calling duties. He took over play calling duties at the end of this past year, and he took over at it. I think it was back in 2018. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember Eric, Eric Washington. Washington. He, yeah, yeah, he replaced. And I understood that. We we watched Sean McDermott and Steve Wilkes leave in consecutive years, and we were a little thin on the defensive coaching staff. But it's one of those things that he wasn't necessarily impressive in either of those two stints when he took over those duties. So it will be interesting to see if he's actually a decent play caller if he lands somewhere. Uh, on the offensive side, I think you need to get somebody younger uh, with fresher ideas in that room. Uh, I don't know who that would be. Uh, it seems like a lot of people are just plucking OCs, uh, whether for um, their own offensive coordinator play calling roles or head coaching roles. So it's it's very hard to see kind of who would be a good fit for that. But uh, that's what the offseason's for. Hopefully Howie Roseman and Nick Suriani are able to get good guys in both of those roles. And one guy who tore it up this past weekend and a guy that I think should really be one of the front runners. I know we talked, he really wasn't one of those guys, but Mike McDonald, um, I just, what he has done to especially Shanahan style offenses and shutting them down, especially with how efficient and productive those offenses are in the modern NFL is something that I don't think should be discredited, especially when you look at his body of work the past two years with having a banged up defense last year in Baltimore and then having his guys this year. 
And that's something that I think he could bring to Carolina, uh, restore the keep pounding mantra. And I think he would be a massive upgrade to Evero. And I think he has enough respect around the NFL that he would not only be able to bring in an offensive guy that would want to work for him, but he would know which guy to bring in. And I think that's huge to know a guy like, hey, this guy actually has his head on his shoulders because he knows how to operate and run a defense and would be able to have kind of those, I, I think, deeper discussions about, okay, how are you going to stop this? Or how are you going to run this? Um, it would be huge. And, and I think his body of work speaks for himself. I, I know I'm a fanboy of his. I don't know how you feel about him, but I, it's just what he's done, especially over the past month, stopping Kyle Shanahan, Mike McDaniel, and then Bobby Slowick. I mean, Bobby Slowick, he, he held him the nine points the first meeting on week one, held him the three points uh, in the divisional round. So it's just, it's very, very impressive what he's done. Yeah. And obviously all the hype is going to be around like Ben Johnson, uh, Brian Callahan, Slowick, Canales, all the young offensive minds. But I actually think Mike McDonald's the best play caller in general across the NFL. What his defense has done, like you said, in particular against Shanahan offenses has been incredible because not a lot of people can stop Shanahan offenses uh, across the league. And he's been one to truly lock them down. And not even just Shanahan offenses. You look at what they did to uh, the Lions. Yeah, back in like week uh, six or eight or something like that. Um, just absolutely shut him down. Uh, Lamar didn't even play most of the fourth quarter of that game. Um, look what they did. Well, uh, Mike McDaniel is Shanahan, but across the league, they're shutting down. Uh, I get Shanahan and McVeigh's mixed up a little bit, and, but, uh, and, and I'll say this and we're, we're, we're going to discuss this more as we get into the playoff picture in this next section, but I think he is going to absolutely steamroll Mahomes. Like I, what we saw in that Super Bowl against the Bucks where Mahomes just ha- was under duress, uh, didn't really have anywhere to go with the football. I think that's, what's going to happen this Sunday. Uh, but we'll get more into that. But it's like one of those things, if he shuts down a read offense and it's like, what what else is keeping you from hiring this guy? Like the only offense that really I thought generated a lot of steam was Sean McVay. Uh, and he had Matthew Stafford and Matthew Stafford had Puka Nakua, Cooper Cup, uh, Kyron Williams, a solid offensive line. Like this, this, that was not a shabby offense to go up against and get kind of, I, I wouldn't say steamrolled, but have a 30 piece put on you. Yeah, for sure. I think this is a perfect segue into the playoff talk as well, because they're going up against Mahomes, right? And we talked about, or I talked about earlier, how Mahomes in the playoffs is lights out. And the only times he's really ever been shut down are the second half of that uh, Bengals AFC championship game, where uh, I, I believe it was Lou Anarumo put on a clinic for him. Yep. And then that uh, the Super Bowl against the Bucks, where both of his starting tackles, I believe, were out. I think that was the uh, the Mike Rimmer special. He lost uh, yep. two teams Super Bowls, but uh, that was him. And the offensive line was under duress the whole time. Mahomes was under duress the entire time. And that was just a tough outing for him. So I think the defense that Mike McDaniel or Mike McDonald, excuse me, is going to put forward this week will be something that's going to give Patrick Mahomes struggles. Yeah. Uh, what's cool about the playoff um, kind of picture going into this weekend is it's two number one seeds with the Ravens and the 49ers uh, hosting the three seeds in both their respective conferences in the uh, Lions and the Chiefs. And I know you're going to talk about kind of like some of these matchup implications for the Super Bowl in a little bit. But what's interesting, and I'll go into the Ravens-Chiefs discourse since we've been talking about this, is Kelsey had two touchdowns against the Bills. And the Bills were down to A.J. Klein at linebacker, who was signed, I think, midseason, was really meant to more just coach the unit and coach the defensive side of the ball, not really be a player necessarily. I mean, the guy's old. He played for uh, the Panthers back in the day and then the Saints. He was Luke Keekley's backup during our Super Bowl. (laughs) So this this guy's been in the NFL a long time. He's been a solid role player. I don't want to take anything away from A.J. Klein, but these aren't guys that you want covering a guy like Travis Kelsey, even if Travis Kelsey's in his 30s. Um, and so with that, I think they they had a matchup advantage. You aren't going to have that against Roquan Smith and Patrick Queen and Kyle Hamilton, where they're going to be able to bracket him and just take away that. I think they're going to be able to suffocate kind of the Rasheed Rice option. So that means NBS is going to have to step up and go nuclear. And I mean, he did that last year in the AFC Championship game against the Cincinnati Bengals. I don't know if he's going to be able to do that again. And I don't know if that's going to be enough offensive production to put them over the top, especially when you see what 
Todd Munkin and Lamar Jackson and that offense is producing right now. And they're getting Mark Andrews back to add to Zay Flowers, Odell Beckham, Rashad Bateman, Nelson Aguilar, that that offensive line that is is one of the better offensive line groups in the NFL. Like, And you're playing in Baltimore. Like, This is one of those things that like this feels like a legacy game. And the last time these two teams met was back in 2021. So the last time they played, Todd Monken wasn't the offensive coordinator and Mike McDonald wasn't the defensive coordinator. So I think there are elements and layers to this uh, where they're, they have unfamiliarity with the players don't necessarily know what it's like to go up against some of these uh, kind of schemes and looks. And the, the, I think the advantage the Ravens have is John Harbaugh worked with Andy Reid and Steve Spagnola a lot in the two thousands. So he has a lot of familiarity with what they like to do. So I, I think just a lot of advantages for the Ravens. I think if you're you're looking at a lopsided game, this is probably going to be that this weekend. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the Ravens are just going to shut them down. I think what's really cool about this game, however, is that barring some surprise announcement, I think we can all lock in Lamar Jackson's going to be the MVP this year. It's going to be a battle of two-time MVPs between Mahomes and Lamar. So that should be... Right after the Mahomes versus Allen battle, Mahomes mm-hmm. versus Jackson battle should be just as good. It, it should. And I, I know I talked about Harbaugh working with Reed in the 2000s. What's interesting is Reed beat McDermott last uh, week, um, and that was a former student of his. So to go up against another former student, I know a lot of people talked about the Tony Dungy, Lovey Smith Super Bowl back in 2006 and some of the kind of those uh, intricacies. But it's, it's interesting to kind of see some of this overlap um, and it'll be interesting to see if you'll see more like Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay battles as the NFC kind of continues to progress over the next few years, uh, because those battles are always fun to see when you have guys that work together and, and kind of know each other's like trade secrets, so to speak. Um, another thing I want to highlight on this game before we move on to the 49ers Lions matchup is that the Ravens have the best weighted DVOA through the divisional round since 1981 when DVOA was being tracked. So they're better than like the Chicago Bears in 85, some of these other just stellar teams that played. No other team has been above a 50% threshold. The Ravens are at 55.2%. And I understand Mahomes can can turn it on and, and be out of this world, but it's one of those things that I think the Ravens are just too much right now uh, for this Chiefs squad as it's built. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think uh, it, it's going to be a good matchup no matter what. And all four of these teams kind of transitioning into the NFC have some pretty good play callers on the offensive side of the ball, at least. I know some, some of them don't have the defensive stars that uh, – Baltimore has, but we got Reed, uh, Munkin, and then in this game, we've got Ben Johnson versus Kyle Shanahan, who were in your play caller rankings were two top 10 play callers. Uh, I think we can both agree that they have some of the most electric kind of schemes and how they move players around and stuff like that. So I I think this one is going to be the more interesting of the two games for sure, simply because I think Baltimore is going to crush KC, but I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. This is this is going to be an interesting matchup because you could argue the two starting quarterbacks where we were talking about on the AFC side, those are two-time MVPs going up against each other. These are two like middle-tier quarterbacks going up against each other. Granted, Jared Goff, first round, uh, first overall pick back in 2016, 16. if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of been a journeyman, uh, played with L.A., uh, took the Rams to the Super Bowl in 2018, was traded to Detroit. They've rebuilt the team there. They're they're a game away from kind of getting to the Super Bowl again. You have Brock Purdy, a, a uh, Mr. Irrelevant last year, um, back-to-back NFC Championship games. They're hosting this year. Like you said, these are two great play callers, a lot of great pieces on both sides of the uh, ball. The advantage, I would say, that goes to the Lions is their ability to run the ball. And I would be very curious to see, especially with Kyle Shanahan's poor clock management, if the Lions just try to play ball control, limit the possessions the 49ers have, and stress Kyle Shanahan out. Because the one thing that I will say might be in their favor is Debo Samuel is 50-50 going into this matchup. And when they haven't had their superstars all assembled, like Avengers assembled, the <laughs> for a poor, poor phrasing of it, but like if they don't have Debo, Christian McCaffrey, Brandon, Ayuk, George Kittle, Kyle Juszczyk, and some of those guys all together, Trent Williams included, 
they have been very human this year. They they have definitely been uh, susceptible to the losing. And when you look at their three-game skids, some of those stars were out. And so that's, I think, an area of concern. I know a lot of people bring up weather concerns. Uh, it seems like the weather is going to be fine in Santa Clara. Uh, in terms of not only like a weather standpoint, it's not going to be anywhere close to freezing. And it looks like it's just more cloudy, not rainy. So with those things in mind, I think this really will come down to kind of two powerhouse offenses going at each other and how they approach kind of the game script and if they can limit the drives for each other. Yeah, well, to bring up the point of uh, it being in California and the weather and all that kind of stuff, Goff is used to playing in California. Uh, I think they're because uh, he was in St. Louis originally the first year, but he was with uh, the Rams in L.A. for a few years, even in the new stadium for one year, I believe. So he has experience there. And you talk about the the run game, the two headed monster of Gibbs and Montgomery, who put on a show uh, this past <sighs> week. Gibbs was absolutely incredible against the uh, the Bucks. I think they're going to be a force. And then. You write. You wrote down the uh, the tight ends. I think they're going to be a big thing too, uh, for both sides. Kittle and Laporta both being the two All Pro tight ends this year, and both being from Iowa. That's a neat little connection that they have there. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting for sure. I think both of these teams have a depth of very good skill players. I think it's honestly going to come down to the quarterbacks who's going to make the right decisions because we we talk about Brock Purdy being a guy that manages the game well all right and doesn't make a ton of mistakes he didn't play super great against the green bay packers this past week he had like four or five dropped interceptions uh it wasn't his best outing for sure and jared goff has been kind of good recently especially in the second half of games so to me it's going to come down to those the qb play of those two yeah, I think the only thing you can knock on golf is he hasn't been necessarily the best on the road. But again, this isn't a cold weather game in Chicago. This isn't a, a cold weather game in like Kansas City. Like this is, I think the low will be like lower 50s. The high is going to be like lower 70s. So when you're in that range, if it's not raining, like those are good conditions to play in. Um, obviously, the crowd's going to be a factor. But uh, Dan Campbell has been great in terms of uh, timeout usage, challenges, other things like that in terms of management, which comes from that aspect of playing the CEO role, kind of the, similar to what Nick Sirianni did in the Eagles Super Bowl run last year. And with Kyle Shanahan being the play caller, he hasn't really paid as much attention and due diligence to some of those aspects of the game. And that could cost them here. This is one of those things that if they lean on Montgomery and Gibbs, who are a fearsome two-headed monster, that is a great offensive line to work behind. This could spell trouble for the 49ers. And if they lose this game, it's one of those things they traded for Chase Young middle of the season. Uh, Brandon Ayuk is going into his fifth year um, kind of of his rookie deal. And you start wondering, Similarly to like what we were talking about with the Bills, are they going to be able to keep this roster intact moving forward? And I think that's a huge concern. Now, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. No, go for it. Uh, uh, if we don't have anything else uh, with this game, I was going to kind of talk about the implications of uh, the matchups here and like the Super Bowl matchups. Um, obviously, the big one, Baltimore versus San Francisco. That's a Super Bowl we had going on 11 years back now. So that'd obviously be a Super Bowl rematch. And then Kansas City and San, uh, San Francisco. That was Mahomes' first win. So either either or of the AFC wins versus San Francisco, we would get a good rematch. And then speaking of rematches, we look at if Kansas City wins and Detroit wins, the very first game of the season on Thursday night football, Kansas City versus Detroit. And Detroit won that game. So if we get that matchup, that could be a rematch as well. But hopefully, and this is getting into my perfect take of this week, there's not really an implication between Baltimore and Detroit. They they and played the, earlier this year. I mean, they in did, Baltimore. And, and Baltimore smoked them. But as far as like massive storylines go, I don't think there is one. But my take this week or this weekend is that both of the red teams are going to lose. So Kansas City's losing. San Francisco's losing, and the Ravens and Lions are gonna lock in their Super Bowl berths, punch their tickets to. Uh, is it in Houston this year? Uh, no, it's I, in Las Vegas this year. In Las Vegas, yeah, that's right. They're gonna go to Las Vegas and uh, tear it up there. So that's my take. 
I I think that would be a phenomenal Super Bowl. Uh, our our friend over at Sumer Sports, Tej Seth, would be absolutely ecstatic yeah. to see his hometown team make it to the Super Bowl for the first time in franchise history. There's a lot of storylines between that. Dan Campbell, a great head coach, like we just talked about a couple minutes ago, CEO kind of role. John Harbaugh does the same thing. He was a special teams coordinator for Andy Reid for most of the 2000s, and he has turned it over to where he brings in great coordinators. And people kind of talk about that offensive coordinator uh, turnover that you brought up that kind of everybody's been replaced since 2022 for all 32 franchises, and yet he's been able to produce – uh, great offense and great defensive production uh, for well over a decade now, so going back to 2008 when they drafted Joe Flacco. So it's really cool to see that. I think there would be a lot of great storylines with that. Um, my perfect take, even though our, our picks of the week differ a little bit, I think it's going to be a Ravens 49ers Super Bowl. My take is going to be uh, the Ravens helped me out with my perfect take last week. The 49ers kind of screwed me. So I, if <laughs> – Screw them is kind of my mantra this week with the 49ers. I don't care really what happens with that game. But I think the Ravens more than cover that three and a half line. Um, I would argue that they win by five or more easily. I think this is a game where it can get out of hand really fast. And with a rowdy Baltimore crowd on the road and kind of some of those concerns that we talked about with the Chiefs offense and going against Mike McDonald's squad, I I think this is just a, a fitting game to kind of stamp of approval, uh, book their ticket to Las Vegas. And it will all the more uh, cement, I think, Lamar's Jackson's legacy in terms of being a Hall of Famer. Because I think with two MVPs, you really put yourself in that conversation. But to now have that Super Bowl berth and probably be the favorite in that game, uh, I think is huge. And so that that's my take of the week. I think the Ravens win by five or more, more than covering the spread at three and a half, kind of listed by FanDuel right now. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes on Sunday. We will catch you guys next week. As always, if you guys have any questions, shoot them to us at, at perfect underscore takes on Twitter or X, however uh, you call it these days. And we will catch you guys next week.